Welcome to the Enterprise Leaders Podcast, where we discuss the stories and lessons behind successful enterprise businesses. We talk to entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders to learn from their expertise and explore the playbooks that are critical to building category leaders. Please reach out with any feedback or suggestions for guests to podcast at stormventures.com. Your host, Arun Penmetza, a partner at Storm Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley. Today, we are going to be talking about the security role within companies and what makes a great security leader, what enables them to shine, and what are the pitfalls to avoid. We are very lucky to have Travis McPeak here with us today. Travis is the head of product security at Databricks and previously led security teams across a number of companies like Netflix, IBM, Symantec, and others. Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's get started with a bit of background. Can you walk us through what led you to into the cybersecurity space and eventually to Databricks? Sure. Yeah, I've always loved security. Since I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to do something in security. I think, you know, when I when I was really small, I'd go around my grandma's house and pick up all the locks and all the electronics. I really just always love this idea that there are these systems and people want to keep you out of the systems or, you know, keep you from doing certain things. And there's other class of people that want to break in. It's just such a cool like cat and mouse aspect of it. So I, I would be doing this today, even if it wasn't the glamorous cybersecurity job that it, you know, that it is. And I would say in my career, I've always been gravitated towards uh, these large problems that are too complex to solve unless you automate them. So that's kind of my bread and butter. Uh, you know, the companies that you mentioned have all had challenges for me there. And really at Databricks, I'm here to solve the, the problem because, you know, for Databricks, it's cru crucial that customers all believe that Databricks will do a good job taking care of their data. That is, that is a must have. So I'm here because it's a good challenge and they can use my skills. We'll talk obviously more about Databricks uh, coming up. So taking a step back, security has been a lot has been in the news a lot recently with a number of high profile breaches over the years. So can you talk to me a bit about, you know, what do you think is the role of a CISO and the broader cybersecurity team in a company? Absolutely. Yeah. So CISO, the security team is really to be an expert in security risk and help the business make an informed decision. What risk are they willing to assume? How are they going to make trade-offs when it comes to execution and delivery that will impact the risk? So, for example, you know, most most CEOs, most of the executive team don't really think about how likely is a is a breach to happen. How will a breach happen? What kind of things can we do to improve it? How much is it going to cost us? And that that's really where the security team can come in, right. help the executives, the engineers, and everybody else really understand how these things happen, and then how they can make how you can make it less likely. And hopefully, that's changing with with all you know everyone within the company taking security more seriously these days. You mentioned risk and the, num the, the number of different things that a security team has to do. We hear a lot about the security operations center. They often have to manage risk, compliance, and there's probably a number of other areas that, that the security team is responsible for. For a large company, let's say Databricks or Netflix, where you were previously, can you talk us through what the security team, how is it structured? I mean, for example, you manage product security. What, what do your peers look like and how do you distribute responsibility within an organization like that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is very organizationally dependent. So what it looks like at Databricks is different than the way it's structured at Netflix. Really for product security, it's security of the product itself. So how do we make the, the product have the right features that customers can use it to operate it securely? And then also, how are we building processes within engineering so that all of our engineers can create secure 
code and deploy secure services without having to become security experts themselves. Uh, at other places, right. you know, you'll typically have identity and access management is a pretty big area. You'll always have some detection and response capability. Um, always have some probably like cyber offense or, or assessment um, function, cloud security. These are all different areas and, and different companies slice them different ways, depending on what the footprint is. One of the things that's always been interesting is ultimately who's responsible for the security and the risk, right? Because there is a trade-off between how much, as you mentioned, how much responsibility you want to place on the security team, who's not necessarily, obviously, the, the team that's building the product day to day. You obviously don't want the product team and the engineers to actually have to learn everything that they need about uh, to build a safe product. So how do you balance that? I mean, I'm sure there are some areas where you have to offload responsibility. Like how, how closely do you work with these teams? Like what does a day-to-day responsibility here look like? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the most valuable function that security does is provide that context. So make it easy for everybody that has security impact to understand what that impact is and what their options are. Uh, I work very closely with engineers. So I actually report into engineering and all of, you know, engineers are my peers. So we're working day-to-day constantly. Uh, you know, different security orgs are structured differently. For example, at Netflix, we had a what called a partner model where you have these application security experts and they will go do almost like an embed where they'll sit with a part of the business where there's a lot of risk and really help them to build secure products. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think that model has evolved. For example, many years ago when I was when I was an engineer, it often security often came as an afterthought. You would you would kind of create the product, get the new release out and before you push to production, there would be, let's call it a security review, where someone from the security team would come in and try to better understand, is there a risk? But it was, it was always after the fact at some level. But it sounds like the, the model has changed now where you're actually embedded with teams so that in real time, or not, maybe not in real time, but as close to real time as you can, you're getting feedback on, is the product secure? What changes do you make in advance of creating a bigger problem down the road? Yeah, absolutely. I I guess two parts to that. So one, there's this whole shift left idea, right? Which is that it's much cheaper if you can catch defects before they land in production. And so, you know, the best place would be before something's designed or as it's being designed. So that's part of it. And then also you just have much quicker cycles overall. So the, you know, when you had a waterfall model before you're developing for six months, then you kick it over to QA and then you do security. That whole cycle is shortened now. So that you know the traditional security comes at the end wouldn't even be effective, even if even if it wasn't so expensive to do it that way. You talked a little bit about Databricks in the beginning, and and you're right. I mean, companies like Databricks and Netflix obviously are massive companies and have an enormous amount of data that they're managing for their customers. Can you give me a sense of the scale of the problem the security teams face? I'm guessing the attack surface is massive. So how do you think about that scale and do you do things differently as opposed to maybe let's say a smaller company would have to do? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, you know, when you're talking about hundreds or thousands of developers, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of microservices, or hundreds or thousands of microservices, you know, anything that you maybe could do on an individual basis breaks down in scale. So one example is uh, least privilege. At Netflix, I worked on a, something called RepoKid that does automatic least privilege. The traditional model for least privilege is I sit down, you know, as a security person, I sit with a developer and I say, what are you building? What kind of permissions do you need? That becomes so expensive to do at scale that it's it's infeasible. You need to look for some kind of an automated approach or to enable the developers themselves to do it. I think that's probably been one of the most interesting aspects to, you know, as we as we dig into the security space, because 
every small error, like you said, is magnified at an immense scale when you kind of work at work at this scale. So that's that that's pretty interesting. Just to build on top of that question, what do you do with that kind of footprint when there's a security issue? What does the response look like? We talk a lot about engineering issues, right? Infrastructure gets impacted, the service is down. There's typically a process you do to bring it back up. With security, there's a breach or there's a risk of a breach. What does typically the workflow look like? Is it all hands on deck? Like, are there certain teams that are responsible for that? Or how, how does that work? Yes, yeah, it's the same kind of thing with an engineering process. So if you have your system is down, then the SRE team or somebody like that is going to pitch in. They're experts in running an incident effectively. How do you, you know, what is the process? How do you loop people in? All that kind of stuff. So that's what the security incident response team typically does. They're experts in keeping calm, running a process end-to-end, documenting things, calling in the right people. But really, the engineers are going to be closest to the problem. They're going to know how the system operates. And so you need to loop in the engineers at the right time. Moving more to the people side, in your view, what makes a good security manager? At least in my view, one of the challenges you often run into is you're working with teams that don't necessarily report into you, but you have to work with them closely and, you know, in many ways, convince them that this is a priority among all the other things that they're working on and to take this seriously and be proactive in how you deal with security. Just the day-to-day job, what's the difference you think between a good security leader versus a great one? Yeah, that's an awesome question. A a few things, right? So you have to be empathetic for what the person that you're talking with, you know, what their circumstances are. So engineering people, they all have their own goals, deliverables, tight deadlines. You need to understand that, you know, the work that you're proposing that they do is going to detract from something else that they want to do and then work to come to a common understanding of the truth. So, you know, and be pragmatic, right? It's like, I don't want every single security issue fixed. We would never deliver anything for the business. I want to have the right amount of security things fixed at the right level. So I think the, you know, be open, uh, really listen to what people are telling you and don't come in with this fixed, you know, um, like absolutism for security. A, A lot of security folks do that and it just, it erodes the trust that you need to be successful operating with the business. I think that also ties into the concept of a security-driven culture, probably, right? So everyone is aware of security as a priority, but it, it's not, it doesn't take over everything. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on that concept? It comes up a lot as companies start scaling, but how do you build a security-driven culture? Right. Yeah, I think the, you know, so at the, at, you can take an extreme, right, where only the security team does security stuff. And then that's not going to scale. There's issues. You can't be everywhere at once. You're not going to have... of the engineers be security people. And then you you take the other extreme where every single engineer needs to know everything about security. They're not going to be effective at whatever they need to get done. So what you need is clearly something in the middle. And what I found is a kind of a sliding scale. You have, you do some basic level education and awareness. Like these are the kinds of issues that we see. This is when you should ask for help for security. You know, use these kinds of systems that we've built to handle issues. And then, so all engineers have this basic awareness and know when to ask for help. And then you have security folks with different expertise and they've built relationship with their engineering counterparts so that they they are aware of designs that are happening, can integrate into the processes effectively. And of course you have on-demand folks, you know, when when something is is more in depth is required. You you mentioned the sliding scale. Are there certain metrics that you track as a security team to get a sense of what your security posture looked like or or how far along you're on that scale? I mean there's obviously things like the total number of threats you're, you're observing or the number of alerts that are coming into the SOC. But on, a, on an operational level, is there anything else that you track? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, one is uh, the kind of defects that you're getting, especially if you have something like pen tests or bug bounties. So this is like what came out of the, the end of the process, right? What things did you, sh did you ship to production that actually had defects? So that's one way. And it's, you know, you're never going to catch all of them. So it's a proxy for your total defect population. Right. Uh, you have the effectiveness of, of your bullet management program. So if there is an issue in, in a library or an operating system package that needs to be updated, what's the process look like? How quickly can those things get addressed? Uh, you want to have visibility. So there's, there's like total coverage. What percent of your universe do you actually have insight into? Uh, you can talk about partnerships. How often does the security team get engaged? You talk about net promoter score. How does the engineering feel about security and vice versa? So yeah, there's a, I love metrics in this space. I think there's a lot of things that you can do to measure the health of your program. That's interesting. Yeah, I've, this is the first time I've heard of net promoter score for security teams. So I, di I didn't realize that was a thing, but that, that's, that's really interesting to hear. So yeah, you really want to yeah, build the trust. So that's that, right. net promoter score helps with that. Just on the on the other side of that question, is there anything you think other teams should know when they work with security? Because oftentimes, at least in my experience in the past, it's been sort of a reactive role, right? You're, you're kind of coming in and advising you on security. But oftentimes, teams that are outside, let's say, product or engineering or sales or marketing don't really know what happens in security. And I think it helps for them to understand what goes on inside the security team and how hard they're working to make sure that the products are safe. Is there anything else? Is there anything you do specifically? Is it emails or events or seminars where you kind of try to distill that, that sort of experience so they can work better with you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of stuff like that. So I, I, think, I think it's useful for everybody at the company to have some feeling of who the security team is, who they should ask for help, um, right. go through some kind of basic onboarding about the security tools and services. And then there's security awareness events that you can do. So, you know, Cybersecurity Month comes around every year. I've seen a lot of really successful events where you can incentivize people to, you know, report phishing or, or any basic stuff, use a password manager. Uh, and then there's, there's a, you know, good engagement program. So you, you take somebody that does something like, re, you know, report phishing and you reward that person, you recognize them. I think the more stuff that you can do like this, the better that, you know, people will think about security at the time that they need to. On the other side, um, there's obviously a lot of cybersecurity startups out there. And with a company like Databricks or Netflix, I'm, I'm sure there's a ton of founders, you know, banging on your door to try and get you to use their products and become customers. Any advice you have for entrepreneurs and how you navigate these large companies and, and what would make the process easier for you? Oh, I love that question. Yeah, actually, you know, I, I like to work with startups as well. And one of the things that I tell startups every time is, please don't make me get on the phone with a salesperson to understand whether your product's going to help me or not. Like, you know, very busy. My calendar's bad. Uh, I want to go to your website, see a two-minute video that really explains the value proposition, and then some use cases where I can just dig through and say, oh, yeah, that would be useful for me, or no, it wouldn't. Uh, a lot of the ways that I find out about products are through this, you know, security friends. Somebody else used it. They find it's awesome. So a good product will eventually sell itself. But of course, you have a discovery problem. You have to find out about a new product that nobody's used before. And that's where that video or the use cases could really help. And, and that way, it's, it's a much more easier process because the top of the funnel for cybersecurity companies is massive. So it's often hard to distinguish what each company does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of buzzwords, you know, part of this is an obfuscation thing, right? So you, you, your product doesn't actually do that much, but you got to throw in a bunch of buzzwords. Uh, so yeah, I would say, I understand why that's tempting. 
But, you know, please make it very clear what you do. And it's also important to mention what you don't do. Like somebody's going to figure it out eventually. You don't want to waste your time or theirs. So, yeah, be, be upfront. That's fantastic advice. You know, obviously, security is critical. And we talked a bit about all the things that successful companies are doing to keep it top of mind. Why do you think a lot of companies struggle with security? We've talked a little bit about all the breaches that you hear about. Is it just lack of investment or mindset or any, any thoughts there? It's really hard. <laughs> security is such a hard job. There's there's just so much going on in an environment. You know, any reasonably sized environment has a ton going on. So, you know, think about even like just a, a slice of this. You know, think about the supply chain problem. You're consuming a lot of upstream software. How do you know if it's good? Or vendor assessment. You're dealing with a new vendor. How do you know if they're doing security well? Like these things are all hard problems in, on themselves. And then any typical security team probably has 20 or 25 of these problems that they have to deal with. So it's just so much work for anybody to do. I think, I think you know, most organizations are really trying and it's just, it's a really hard problem. <laughs> so in this environment, I'm sure, you know, the role is quite stressful for security folks, right? I mean, there's potentially a fire around the corner all the time. So how do you think about building and incentivizing the team or, uh, you know, in the right way in these situations? Yeah, I love that question. You know, really, mistakes are going to happen, right? Like, you're going to eventually have an incident. Uh, You want to always learn from the incident. You know, like, you don't blame, but you want to find what could we have done better? You know, what could we do to identify these kind of situations in the future? And really celebrate the good work. You know, like, it's so easy to cast blame. But, hey, you know, you built this thing that's really awesome. Or this this engineer over here, security is not their job. And they raised, you know, they raised a very valid security issue anyway. They celebrate these small wins and it'll, you know, it kind of builds a virtuous cycle eventually. In terms of just a company and scaling, you know, obviously at the the scale of a Netflix or Databricks, you have pretty sophisticated security teams. When should founders, if you're starting a company and starting to build it and you start going from five people, 10 people, 20, 100 people, at what point do you start hiring a CISO or investing in in security products is there is there a certain roadmap that you would advise a new company to take yeah there's a couple of parts of that so you you have your risk tolerance right uh, if you're you know maybe consumer facing then your risk tolerance might be a bit higher if you're enterprise facing then your your risk might be lower and then also there's um, it's not security related but compliance a lot of companies need to meet certain compliance standards in order to do business effectively. So, I, I mean, if you're in the enterprise space, SOC 2 is going to almost certainly come up very early. So even if you don't have a security person, I, I recommend when I deal with startups that they start thinking about SOC 2 almost immediately. Because if you do it earlier, it's easier than if you have all these systems built up and you have to retrofit it. Now, in terms of, of actual security, it depends on your, you know, who you have on staff. If you have really good engineers that have done some security work before, you might be able to get by without a dedicated security engineer for longer. Uh, I would recommend most companies start with a security engineer that can kind of wear the hat, you know, wear all the hats and build up systems before they get a CISO. Uh, you know, CISO really, I guess, depends on the stage of the, you know, the, the kind of company, but I see like series C or later. Shifting gears a little bit, with large companies, especially if you're distributed around the world, and given COVID, all of us are working from home, so we're more distributed and, and working in remote environments. Do security practices change in that setting? Like, how do you manage to collaborate with your teams? And like you said, you know, previously, maybe you had the opportunity to actually go sit down with engineers and talk to them. 
but now it's all over video across potentially multiple time zones. How does how does the security practice evolve in those situations? There's two sides. There's the technical piece. So this is probably going to accelerate the move away from network-based security, you know, where there was like an office and a VPN and everybody relied on the VPN. So accelerate the the move towards beyond corp or zero trust. And then from you know, strictly there's security and we're people. I think, yeah, building new practices around how do we engage as a team? How do we coordinate on our work? How do we make sure that things don't get dropped? I've spent a lot of time learning from organizations like GitLab that have been remote first for a long time, how to effectively manage people in a distributed environment. And maybe this this is part of the answer that you already gave, but for international customers, you know, potentially people in other regions, other languages, is there anything different that you need to do or is it all part of the same infrastructure? Uh, I'm sure there are different things to do for for international customers. I haven't de- dealt with many of those myself, but yeah, you know, just right. given how complex the businesses are, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of machinery that I'm not seeing uh, related to international customers right. and business. You mentioned something earlier in in the discussion around consumer versus enterprise startups, and potentially consumer startups requiring a little bit more security because you know I assume because they they hold a lot of the security data. Can you expand upon that uh, a, a little bit? Is there anything you would do differently or it's just the level of investment that you would make that you think is different? Oh uh, yeah, enterprise enterprise um, companies would require more security probably upfront. But yeah, I think yeah, the type of data that they're dealing with, the criticality of that data. So if you're if you're a business, you have some, you know, pretty sensitive stuff. If you're making some kind of a consumer device, it might matter less. Uh, and then there's a lot of compliance too that really like is skewed towards the enterprise. So if you're taking people's credit cards, you have you're going to be subject to PCI. If you're doing, you know, right. if you're doing any kind of enterprise to enterprise business, they're going to ask for SOC two. And each of these compliance things requires certain security discipline that you're going to meet as a baseline standard. Uh, and then just your risk profile, like what happens if this thing goes wrong? What happens if there's a breach? That number is going to be much more impactful typically in the enterprise side. On a more personal level, like for people who are starting out in the security space, clearly you have been interested in security since you were a kid. Is there any advice you would give for a young professional who wants to get into a security role, a certain path you, you would recommend taking or or a mindset to approach the role? Yeah, yeah, I love that. It, you know, security can feel really hard to get into. And it's uh, it's kind of the industry's fault. Nobody, you know, very few people want to give a new person their first security job. Everybody has to be mega senior, which doesn't make any sense, of course. Right. So uh, what I tell people that are that are getting started is to do things to de-risk themselves. So, you know, from a hiring manager's perspective, I'm going to look at you and say, you know, can I, is this person going to come in and be self-driven? You know, do they know how to write software? Do they know how to operate as a team? There's some things that you can do, you know, maybe before you even graduate that would help to help me feel better about that. So work on some open source software, maybe pick an open source tool and make it better in some way. And then the other thing is, is like getting through the front door and an interview process is the hardest way to get a job. So do something to get yourself to build your network and then meet people at the companies that you want to work at. And then when an opportunity comes around, they'll think of you and you don't have to apply through the front door. It's much simpler. To conclude, uh, obviously the world changed quite a bit in the last year, but do you have any any predictions for the next two to three years on what, what you think might happen in the cybersecurity space or interesting trends that you think we should highlight? Yeah, that's interesting. I you know, I think that uh, there's so many exciting things happening with startups today in security startups, so many cool companies. 
I think that a lot of these are going to get to the level of success where they're an acquisition target for one of the bigger, bigger, more established players, as we've seen a lot of in the market. Uh, the reason that this this makes sense sometimes is the bigger established players have it's easier to do business with one company. So if I, you know, if I buy Palo Alto, then it's easier for me to add on new features to Palo Alto. Uh, so I think we're going to continue to see uh, these small companies really be innovative out in front and then acquired by larger companies as soon as they get good product market fit. Um, you know, we've already seen, seen this a lot. This is not net new, but I think we'll see even more of it in the future. Absolutely. And yeah, the pace of M&A in the security space has certainly be pretty, pretty fast. And like you, like you mentioned earlier, right? I mean, given that there's so many tools out there, it's often hard to understand what each tool does, if, especially if the vendors are not making clear and using all the buzzwords. So using one platform often makes it far easier for these companies. I guess one um, more thing that we might see yeah, more of is uh, is Staffog. So you know, it, it's really hard to hire the best people yeah. for security. So I would I would bet that we're going to see more of just a team of really good people that you can bring on for three months to build up something and then move on. So you know, kind of like a specialized form of contracting. That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Great. Well, well, Travis, that's all I had in terms of questions. Thank you so much for joining us. This was very insightful. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Enterprise Leaders Podcast with Storm Ventures. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Till next time.